Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Of course, it is as something special. We are so proud to welcome back Planaria Price, uh, who has written Claiming My Place with Helen Reichman West. And um, this is a really special event for us here at the store. Um, there's such a real sense of community that we are always trying to foster here. And um, Planaria Price just embodies it in such a beautiful way. Um, in the room, that's you guys. Behind the scenes, that's us. And um, on the stage, her herself. Um, I just have to brag for a second. Uh, her daughter, um, Euphronia Awakani, had her debut novel here on stage just last year. Um, her son-in-law, uh, the research librarian and screenwriter, Kevin Awakani, uh, was a longtime bookseller here. Um, and it's just a wonderful, real sense of Los Angeles community. Um, Planaria and Murray are famous in my Echo Park neighborhood, um, just as local figures. They've restored over 30 historic Victorians in Angelino Heights, and uh, Planaria has spent a career teaching thousands of people in Los Angeles how to speak English. So with this, her seventh book, which is um, really, uh, it, it stands out um, for being such a narrative feat, it just um, really feels right that Planaria is once again restoring a historical past giving voice in English in Los Angeles to an immigrant's astonishing true story. It's um, really quite an accomplishment. It's really special for us to host this here. Uh, the story itself has been called engrossing, extraordinary, sad, terrible, and captivating. Let's please give a warm round of applause to Plenary of Place. Quite beautiful. Thank you so much. I want to thank Carrie and Skylight Books for letting us have this this reading of my magnum opus. I am so excited to show it to the world, and I just feel so honored that all of you are here. There's so many of you here. It's St. Patrick's Day. It's cold. It's marathon tomorrow. So thank you so much. Parking was really hard. Thank you so much for being here. What I would like to do in the beginning is to tell you how this book came to be. Uh, Murray and I were in Big Sur in April of 2006 for one of his 15 marathons. I don't remember which number that was. And it was the day before the marathon, and it really, really was, I'm Tony hates it when I say this, but it really, really was a dark and stormy night. It was just a raging storm. And so, of course, the only thing you can do is to go to Nepenthe and sit at the bar and have dinner. And I really am not quite clear on how it happened. We sat next to two women, and maybe it was the lox plate she had ordered, and I had ordered a lox plate, but we just started talking. And for some reason, she wanted to tell me the story of her mother, Barbara Reichman, who was a Holocaust survivor. And I was engrossed. But the story was so unique for Holocaust stories. I mean, just incredible. And there was so much synchronicity and serendipity and coincidence, whatever you want to call it, in Barbara's life. And I said, oh, but you, you've got to write this in a book. I mean, I think there should be six million books written about the Holocaust, but this is so unique. It's got to be written down and passed on to the new generations. And she said, oh, yeah. I'm a psychotherapist, and I, I, I can't write. And Murray says, well, Planaria's a writer. And I said, oh my god, yes. 
I would love to write this book. So I gave him my card, and he ran the marathon the next day. And six months later, she called me from her home in Washington, D.C. She had Googled me, she had investigated me, she had checked me out, and her mother gave permission. And so in November of 2006, Marie and I went on an airplane to Washington, D.C. We stayed at Helen's, the, the daughter's house, for a week. And I interviewed Barbara Reichman, 90 years old, feisty, just incredible, the most fantastic memory of anyone that I've ever met. And she would drive in her car from her apartment every day to Helen's house. And I would sit there at the kitchen table with all kinds of goodies with my laptop and my tape recorder and interview her. And that took five days. It was just, it was a, a love fest. Incredible story. I came back to Los Angeles and I was so stoked by the whole thing. I wrote the first draft in two months, three months. Just, just so incredible. Sent it to Helen and Barbara. Of course, we were back and forth, back and forth, emailing, talking on the phone, getting more details because Helen had said to me, she said, it is a sin to, to lie, to say anything wrong that's not true about the Holocaust. And so I wanted to be sure that every single thing I wrote was 100% accurate. Then I sent it to them, they went over it, and then we went back in, in uh, February of 2007, Marie and I, and we interviewed Barbara again for about two or three days. Unfortunately, at that point, she was diagnosed with lymphoma, but she was fine, she was fine. And one of my, my strongest memories of that experience, and Helen wouldn't let me put it in the book, I don't know why, but I, time was short for the interviewing, so one day Helen, Barbara, and I went to the hospital for Barbara's chemotherapy. And she is sitting in the chair with the IVs in, and I'm on a stool at her feet with my tape recorder and my laptop, and she is sitting there talking to me, eating a tuna fish sandwich and a dill pickle. And that kind of tells you about the personality of Barbara. So, unfortunately, at the age of 91, when in, in October of 2007, Barbara passed away, and Helen was deep, deep, deep into grief, and we just had to put the project away for about three years. At some point, Helen sent the first draft to Dr. David Lindquist, who is a Holocaust professor. He's with the Museum of Tolerance, the Holocaust Museum in DC, and he's head of curriculum development on Holocaust, Holocaust studies. She sent him the manuscript, and he wrote the most beautiful review I have ever gotten. And he, he, I feel humble to say this, he compared the book to Anne Frank, and he said, but whereas Anne Frank is in like a cocoon in her attic, this story shows the whole world what the Holocaust was all about. And with that wonderful review, Helen and I felt like we could get going again. And so I kept writing and writing and getting more research and redoing it and redoing it. And then in 2012, I felt it was ready. I don't know if there's any writers out there, but I want to tell you that it took me Dublin, you're listening? Okay. It took me two or three years, 87 agent rejections. And the 88th one was the Deborah Harris Agency in Jerusalem. And she said, I like it. I want it. I sent it to them. And within three months, 
they had it sold to Ferrara Strauss Jarrell. I mean, like, oh, wow, so exciting. But for writers, you need to understand that they decided to clean it up a little bit. And so I, most of the books I've written, I always, I don't know why, but I start my chapters with epigraphs. I feel like it focuses the, the reader in, into the chapter. Oh, they didn't want epigraphs, they took that out. And then I had, in the book for the foreshadowing, I had Barbara talking to Helen as a side. Oh, they didn't like that, they took that out. And then they, they, just, they just changed things. The main thing is, the week before it was sent to Ferrara Strauss Jerome, Rena, the agent, called me. She's hysterical. She said, but this is a young adult book, and I just realized that in the first chapter, Barbara's 26, and we can't have that. It has to be, you know, kids. And I swear to God, it's kind of a history book. She took out every single date in the book. But writers, you just, you know, go with the flow. And so when Ferrara Strasturo signed the contract with me, I put everything back in. <laughs> That's the point. It wasn't easy. <laughs> so um, I'd like to read a little. This is a book reading, right? So I'd like to read a little bit. And I was choosing all the different things I wanted to read and share because I'm so excited about this book. And then I went online and it said that if you're doing a book reading, you shouldn't do more than, you know, four minutes or five minutes. And um, so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read four minutes of chapter one. And if you want more, you'll tell me. And if not, we'll just do questions and answers. Questions so far? Okay. Let me, let me, let me be sure I didn't forget anything. It's all there. The chemo and the dill pickle. It's on there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so this is a bio. This way. Yeah. Okay. This is a biography of Barbara Reichman, who was born Sir Gigla Gomelenska in Pietrakov, Poland, in 1916, and had an incredible life. The first chapter is called "Becoming Basha." And of course, there's an epigraph, and I allowed Helen, the daughter, to have, for the first chapter, to put in her own epigraph, and it's a haiku she had written. And it says, I'm running from death, looking over my shoulder, heading straight for her arms. The date is 1942. At long last, the train is pulling out of the station. I wonder how long I've been holding my breath. Out of the corner of my eye, I see Pan Dobronsky sitting next to me. I know it's not possible that he can hear the pounding of my heart. Even so, I reassure myself that the clatter of the train's wheels masks the sound. I'm lucky to have him as my traveling companion. His typical Polish looks will help camouflage me from being discovered as a Jew. Fortunately, there are no Nazi soldiers on the train, at least not in our car, at least so far. Looking out the window, I see the houses of Pietrakov fade quickly behind me. I slow my breathing and try to relax. I have six hours before we go to Novisanch, six safe, quiet hours to empty myself of my past, my name, my identity. Sura Gitla Gomaleska, 
is no more. According to my forged Ken cart, I am now Danuta Barbara Tanska. Suddenly, I'm in a panic to make sure I have my new identity papers with me, my new name. Barely moving, I put my left hand in my coat pocket. I won't take the card out to look at it. That would raise suspicions. Just feeling it between my fingers will give me peace. It's not there. A wave of nausea washes over me. With no identification, I could be killed. Desperately, my fingers search the deep pocket. It couldn't have fallen out. This can't be happening. Not here. Not now. My head spins until I remember that I had put it in my right pocket, not my left. I reach into my coat with my other hand. There it is, such relief. I feel the card with my fingertips. I see it so clearly in my mind. There is my photograph. There is my new name on the gray cardboard the Germans used to identify Poles, not the yellow cardboard designating Jew. I am no longer a Jew to be deported and sent to the camps, or worse. Now, officially, I am a Pole. But the sudden relief mingles with anger at myself. How could I have been so stupid to put the only thing that stands between life and death loose in a pocket, even a deep one? I had carefully decided not to put it in my purse. Purses can be stolen, but a pocket? Pockets have holes. A skilled thief could grab the card without my knowing. What was I thinking? But then I remembered that mad rush to get out of the ghetto. How could I have been thinking clearly about anything? I should have stuffed it in my bra where I put my money. As soon as I have some privacy, I'll put it there. I feel reassured now that I've settled on that plan. As the train rushes forward, I wonder what I should call myself. Danuta? It's so perfectly Polish, but I don't like the harsh sound of it. Barbara is nice and common, but so formal. Surgigla was always called Gucha, such a sweet-sounding nickname. My fingers are caressing the Ken cart in my pocket, and suddenly I see it, I hear it. Basha, that's who I will be. It feels so warm and familiar. It's a good nickname for Barbara, and it has the same sweet sound as Gucha. I lean against the window and say goodbye to Gucha and my past. Basha is now journeying forward to the resort town of Novisange and her uncertain future. so fantastic about Barbara and her memory is she had such vivid memory of being a child, happy, middle-class Jewish in Pietrakov. And so I don't know any, I'm sure there are some, but I don't know any other Holocaust books that talk about early, happy childhood before the Holocaust. And so about a third of the book is her life as a child in Poland. I talk a lot about 
Judaism, about Zionism, about teenage angst, her boyfriend, and, and all those things. And then we go on to, to the Holocaust part. But the most interesting part, I thought, that Helen told me about in Nepenthe was Barbara's first real, real memories of when she was six. She remembered clearly when she was four, and she had to go to a really horrible kindergarten she hated. But she remembered so clearly when she was six going to first grade, and it really shows you her personality from the time she was a child. So I'm going to read that. It's called First Grade. And I've taken that a lot, so it won't take a lot of time. The fabric. Um, again, of course, the epigraph. A desire for knowledge for its own sake. A love of justice that borders on fanaticism and a striving for personal independence. These are the aspects of the Jewish people's tradition. And that's a quote from Albert Einstein. 1922. Gucha, Gucha, Krista calls to me. Gucha, wake up. Have you forgotten what day it is? Krista has been our maid since I was an infant. It's because of her that I speak such fluent Polish. She throws off my quilt, and when she sees me lying there, she gasps, covers her mouth, and jumps back in surprise. I leap out of the bed fully dressed, shaking with laughter. But Gucha, with shoes on and in your bed, she's horrified, but can't stop herself from laughing along with me. How can she think I would ever have forgotten this day? I've been awake since the church bell struck 3 a.m. Then I had quietly dressed myself being careful not to wake my 10-year-old sister, Hella, who was sleeping like a log next to me in the bed we share. As I had lain there waiting for Chrissia to come get me, my teeth chattered with excitement, little shivers going up and down my body. It is to be my first day of first grade, a day I have waited and yearned for as long as I can remember. Chrissia straightens my dress and unwinds my braids. She explains, as she often does, that my hair is just too fine to make good braids, and that fine, blonde, wavy hair is just as beautiful as thick, straight hair. As usual, I don't believe her. She ties my wispy hair away from my face with a blue satin ribbon. Now go see your mama and tata and eat breakfast, she says. I run out of the living room where Hella and I sleep and into the kitchen. On this special September morning, Hannah, our other maid who is Jewish like us, is stirring the porridge at the stove. Two-year-old Josek, my middle brother, sits on the floor, banging the lids on some pots and pans and making a racket. Four-year-old Idik is eating toast with cranberry jam at the kitchen table. Hella is on her way to school, hugging Tata goodbye, and Mama is nursing three-month-old Benek. She holds out her right arm to hug me, understanding my excitement. She smiles and says, and come here, Kitra, meine schöne Mädelin. Mama always speaks Yiddish to me, but more and more I'm speaking Polish to Chrissia and my friends. My mama is already elegantly dressed and ready to go to work. Soon she will leave the baby with Hannah and walk the few blocks to open our kosher butcher shop. Idik and Joseph will stay home with Chrissia without me to play with them but the first time in their lives. It's my first day of real school, Mamashi, I say, hopping up and down on my brand new black patent leather Mary Janes. Can I walk alone? The school is only one block away, 
and I had been walking by myself to visit friends since I was very little. The streets are so safe. There are no strangers, no streetcars, only the occasional horse cart. Mama smiles at me and says proudly, of course you may. You're such a big girl now. I'm excited to go all by myself, and I know that my parents can't take me anyway. They're much too busy. They both work very hard, running the business, and our apartment building, and there are so many of us to take care of when they come home. I feel so different from all of them. I'm burning with questions. There is so much I want to understand. I want to know why people have to die. What are other countries like? Why are some people kind and others cruel? The answers I know are in books. When I was little, I thought people were just teasing me, pretending that the mysterious marks and squiggles in newspapers really meant something. But now I figured out that in school I will learn to read. A teacher will be there to explain everything and answer my questions, and then I will know the world. It's a crisp, almost autumn day. The leaves on the linden trees are just beginning to turn yellow. Their fragrant white blossoms are drying up and falling like snow. I'm very proud of my beautiful new clothes, a navy blue pleated skirt and a matching blue top with starch bright white sailor collar. My skirt and top are made of soft merino wool, and Mama says the deep blue of the dress is very becoming to my amber-colored eyes. I'm happy it's not cold, so I don't have to hide my beautiful outfit under a bulky coat. My only disappointment on this glorious day is that there are no heavy blonde braids falling straight down my back. Will the teacher like me? What if I'm not a good student? Will I know any of the other students? Will I make any friends? Will I be the youngest? Will I be the shortest? Will it be as disappointing and as awful as the kindergarten I was forced to go to when I was four? Finally, I get to the door of the beautiful brick school. It's extremely small. There's only one classroom with first, second, and third grades all together. The teacher is sitting behind her desk. It's on a small raised platform in front of a big blackboard. She's turned toward the door and holds a paper with all of our names. My turn comes and my voice trembles a little as I announce, Sura Gitla Gomolenska. The teacher seems very nice. She's tall and thin, and she's wearing a gray dress with black dots. Her hair is light brown, and she has it tied in a tight bun at the back of her head. She has small, round, gold earrings dangling from her ears, and a gold crucifix hanging from a chain around the neck. Her eyes are almost as gray as her dress. She smiles at me, and then she looks at the list. Excuse me? Could you say your name again slowly? She asks gently. I repeat my three names as clearly as I can, and she looks at the list again. I'm sorry, Sir Gidla, but I cannot find your name on the list. There's no record of your registration. A feeling of horror comes over me, and for a moment, I can't breathe. I realize with my stomach sinking down to my shiny black Mary Janes that my devoted father, who works so hard to take care of us, who never says no, and who would do anything to make us happy, has forgotten to register me for school. I try to explain that my father has probably just overlooked this small detail of registration. My tata has so many important things to worry about, our meat business and apartment building and large household. 
The teacher says she understands. She expresses her regret. I'm so sorry, she says. She seems sincere. You will just have to wait for next year because we have absolutely no extra room, no room at all in the class. All the seats have been assigned. Come back next summer and have your father register you then. And as she gives me what seems like a death sentence, she smiles kindly and gently pats me on my head. For the first time in my life, I feel my heart break. It takes all my strength to hold back my tears as I somehow make my way home. As soon as I get there, the tears burst out of me like a flood, racking my entire body with the sorrow and misery and helplessness I feel, and the anger and the outrage at the injustice of it. I want so badly to curl up in Mama's arms, knowing I have to wait until she comes home at 2 o'clock is torture. Finally, Mama comes home. I rush into her arms, sobbing and telling her my tragic story. She hugs me tightly and tries to calm me down. Soon Tata comes home and Mama leads him to the bedroom to talk. When they come out, the look of pity I see on her face gives me a sick feeling. Bubala, she says to me, if the teacher says there are no more places for now, there's nothing we can do. Your Tata will register you to start school next year. When you start next year, you'll be one year older and smarter and, and able to be much a much better student. I know you're disappointed now, but when you're grown up, it won't matter. Not matter? How can she think that? What will I do for one whole year with all my friends in school? I'll have no one to play with. I turn six on May 15th of this year. Next year I'll be seven. And then I'll be one year behind everyone else forever. Always feeling stupid and ashamed. The idea of just giving up makes me want to explode. I feel so alone. And I see clearly I have to fight for myself. Standing there before Mama and Tata, I make a decision and say, I'm going back to school tomorrow to beg the teacher to let me in. Tata says, no, no, no. You must not argue with the teacher. It's disrespectful. But Mama looks at me with pity. Not, Mama looks at me not with pity, but with pride. She turns to Tata and says, Itzak, let her go. And as always, when it comes to the children, Tata agrees with what Mama thinks. So the next day, in my shiny Mary Jean shoes with my blue pleated skirt and blue sailor cap and wispy blonde hair down my back, tied with a blue ribbon, I walk by myself to the school and present myself to the teacher. The words burst out of me. My name is Sir Gitla Gomolenska, and I am here to learn. I cannot wait for another year. I cannot wait even for one more day. Please, please, let me come to school. The teacher gets a strange look on her face. Displeasure, surprise, respect. She calmly shows me that there is no empty space on my bench, and how can I learn with no place to sit or write? She tells me that I cannot come to school. I must wait for next year. I am not registered, and there is no place for me. With tears in my eyes, again, I walk slowly home. It's not fair. I want to learn. I will not give up. And so, I'll go back to school the next day in my less shiny Mary Jane shoes with my wrinkled blue pleated skirt and blue sailor top and my thin hair down my back tied with a blue ribbon. And again I beg, and again the teacher gently says no, but I do not give up. I return the next day and the next day and the next day and the next. 
Each time she says no. And each day I go back. Week after week, every day but Saturday and Sunday, I go to school and plead with all my heart, fail in my efforts, and return the next day. Do I just wear the teacher down? Does she feel pity for me after so many weeks of begging? Does she truly admire my perseverance, my stubbornness, my sense of justice, my deep, passionate desire for learning? I don't know. But one magical late fall day, she finally gives in. She finds a little stool for me and places it in a corner of the room. After that, she allows my father to pay for the registration. There's still no room, so I have to sit on the stool with my back to the blackboard facing the other students with no table to write on. I listen to everything the teacher says and try my best each day to learn as much as I can. Then, one day in late November, the teacher comes to me and says, Gucha, sometimes one person's misfortune is another's good luck. I've just learned that Wojciech Pavinsky has polio and will not be coming back to school this year. There's a seat for you on the bench at the front table. Go sit. I know I should feel bad for Wojciech, but all I can feel is amazement that what I've given up, even daring to hope for, to be a regular student with my own place like everyone else, has come to pass. I feel warm and glowing inside, triumphant. My standing up for myself has been rewarded. And just like that, my nightmare is over. It's my first lesson in learning to think for myself and fight for what I believe is right. A lesson that will one day help me, give me the determination to fight for my life. know what I was going to get but yeah I what I did discover was that I'm a pretty good interviewer and that I'd say well you know what, what was she wearing and did she have earrings and did she have a crucifix and yeah I, I it, it was I was able to elicit from her so many questions so many memories and details but this is over months and months and years yeah thank you yeah. If you have a question, um, I've got some wine. People that don't ask questions. Zupa? Zupi. So whenever uh, she would uh, answer any of your questions, was it just kind of a continual stream, or did you have to keep prodding her to kind of talk, keep talking? Um, I think I kept prodding. I have... If I knew where's my, my phone, I could... I, I have, you know, like 10 tapes, and I just really quickly thought, well, maybe you'd like to hear her voice. She had a very, very thick Polish accent. Let me see if I can just, okay, let's see if I can just get, so I was trying to get fabric, I was trying to get details so that I could really paint a picture of what really life was like, and so we were talking about food, and she would say that every in one minute, thank you. 
that um, every every day at two o'clock they all have to come back for their lunch and for the children and the father and the mother. And so I was asking her about the food. Hello. So she had a very, very thick accent, as you can see. But you could ask in, in answer to his question, you know, I'd say, well, what kind of soup was it? And, you know, you had meatballs, and then, oh, you had borscht. What? And I said, is it hot or cold? And she said it was hot, and it was beets, and not cabbage. And, yeah, so it, it was definitely a, a, a give and take. And I was asking her questions. She was 90 at the time, and then 91. And I was asking her questions about when she was six and seven. And so often my questions kind of get something going. I mean, she's, she's just incredible from memory. Miss Leilani. Oh, you have to read the book. Though, but her, her mother had a baby, and her mother had what's called postpartum depression. And so they um, had to send Gucha to a kindergarten, and she went to the kindergarten, and she was disgusted by the whole thing. The children weren't toilet trained, and there was only one teacher, and they weren't doing any reading. And so she decided after like three days, forget it. And she just walked home, and she never went back to kindergarten. And, and nobody in the family kind of noticed that. There, there were two maids. There was the Jewish maid, and then the, the Polish maid, and they all took care of her. They were very happy with her. Thank you, Lumani. Any other questions? Oh, thank you. Thank you, Eloise. Um, I really, really like the cover. It's not my title, but this is writers, this is once you give your book to the publisher, it's not your baby anymore. It's like, you know, giving something up for adoption or something. So my title, which I still love, is A Witness Forever. But the marketing and the focusing people said they didn't like that. So it's called Claiming My Place. And what this is, is an artist's rendering of the, ident the Nazi identity card, her Ken card that she was looking for in her pocket. And um, an e stamped on all the cards was the purple, not the, the swastika and the eagle. And this is her picture, her identification picture from when she was at the University of Krakow. That answer. Thank you, Elvis. Any other questions? Yes, Kim. When you got your contract from the publisher, did you rewrite any of it? Oh, rewrite the contract? Mm -hmm. No, I. I'm not a bit. No, I didn't. I, you know, the agent said sign it, and I signed it. I was so relieved after 12 years and 87 rejections, and the fact that it's Farrar Strauss Oh my God! I decided in the beginning. When, when I started writing the book, that I was going to write it for young adults because, I mean, it wasn't going to be a New York Times bestseller and I wanted to get the story out there. And I thought if it's for young adults, then it would be on the, the different um, curriculum, on the what, required curricula, which it will be, I know, so that the story will definitely be able to get out there too.
everyone. Help them. Yeah, Lucy. So I may have missed the first part of that. We were, Murray and I were at a bar. <laughs> and I, I write all about it here too. One, one, one other thing in Big Sur, I just was sitting next to someone and she told me her mother's story. Um, when, when I interviewed Barbara, when I met her, when I, when I felt like I, I was going to write this and I wrote it so quickly, I felt so strongly that it had to be in the first person and in the present tense because Barbara was so present. She was just so... So there, in her memories and in the moment, and um, and so I wrote it in the first person present tense. But that's not done, you know. It's not the genre. This is not a memoir. It's a biography, and it can't be in the first person. But <laughs> it is. <laughs> yes. Did you have a question? No. <laughs> yes. Christy. That, that, that's such a great question, and I, I, I should have mentioned that too. It seems that most survivors of the Holocaust or survivors of the Japanese internment or survivors of Cambodia, I mean, it seems that most human beings who've had these major traumas in their life don't talk about it, don't deal with it. I mean, it just seems like the books st are starting to come out about the Japanese internment and now about Cambodia, like 50 years after the fact. And I was always really amazed that Barbara was so unlike other Holocaust survivor parents that she talked to Helen about it all the time. Helen knew everything, and that's why Helen was so incredible for me when I would have a question after Barbara died, and she knew all the stories, and she had learned the stories from when she was a little girl. Yeah. Helen was born in Munich. They were born in the um, displaced persons camp in Munich after after the war, and so she, her first language, Helen, was German. Thank you. Any other questions? What's yes. your next book about? <laughs> Uh, my next book actually is called Before McDonald's Ate Europe, and it's a travel mem it's a travel memoir. I was writing it for my grandchildren, and then I thought, you know, I think this could work for anybody. It's about what Europe was like when it was Europe. <laughs> Any other questions? Any other questions? Yes. Sorry. Uh, it took you like twelve years to get this book done. Did you write another? Since 2006, and now, did you find it? No. Well, I, Euphonia, did we, our book come out? And when did our book come out? Yeah, Euphonia and I wrote a book together called Life in the USA. But, I don't think of it. Yeah, Leilani. Translation? <laughs> I'll get back to you later. And Christine, Christine, I don't know if I really answered the question, but it was a really, really good question. And it was not, I don't think at any point, that she wasn't willing to talk and talk and talk. I think it was really actually a good 
thing for her. There were a couple of things she told me that I didn't put in the book, really personal things that I didn't put in the book and that Helen wouldn't like put in the book. Um, but um, yeah, no, she was just totally the best person to interview. Stella. Was she, um, did she already read about writing her own memoir? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. She was a very, very humble person. And when we first said, approached her and said, I want, want to write a book about you, she said, well, why me? I mean, I'm nobody. I'm, I'm just, I'm nobody. And then we talked about how important it was to be a witness, to have a testimony so that other people will understand what happened in World War II. Any other questions? Yes, Kim. Just about the publishing process. Mm -hmm. um, did you send out lots of queries at once, or did you wait for each rejection? No. I, okay, the question is, <laughs> and I, you know, this was like, well, it only maybe four years ago, five years ago, but did I send in a lot of queries? Yes, I did. I didn't just send out one and wait for them to never answer me again. It's a really, it's a horrible experience. I mean, the agents are, excuse me, any agents here? But really rude. And, and sometimes, you know, it's so easy to just have a reply, received your query, thanks, something. No, 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 no. And then a few of them who, who wrote back, they were polite, they said, well, it's really, really well written, but, you know, it's about the Holocaust, and, you know, it's not, not for my list. But, yeah, no, I just, <laughs> and with email, you don't have to waste 49 cents. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes, Judith. No. Away. So she had this really, really happy childhood in, in Pietrakov, and then she was really, really bright, and she went to the university, and she learned German, and she learned English, she loved English, and then the, the war happened, the Germans came in in September of 1939, they made Pietrakov Trebolinsky her town, they gave it the honor of being the first ghetto during World War II, and then she lived with her family in the ghetto for two years, she was three years, she was really, really, really good friends with the rabbi's wife, who I fell in love with. Um, they, they were neighbors, and she went and she got false papers, the Danuta Barbara Tanska papers, and then she tried to escape, and that didn't work out, and then the rabbi's wife came to her one night and said, I want you to get out and get out tonight, because she knew that the de deportations were happening. And so she, the rabbi's wife said, go to Novi Sange, it's already free of Jews, all the, all the, the 20,000 Jews are all taken away and they won't suspect you. So she goes to this Polish place and then she has to leave and she goes to another and that's where she coincidentally bumps into Sabina, who I also fell in love with. I fell in love with a lot of these characters. And Sabina was an acquaintance of hers in Pietrakov, who was also being disguised as a pole, and so they were together then. And Barbara said, you know, it's dangerous here. A pole can smell a Jew a mile away. We've got to get out of Poland. And so she went to the German employment agency in Rabka, in this Polish town, and Sabina and she applied for a job as poles working 
in Germany. And she felt really safe in Germany. She said another thing too. She said, the Germans are so stupid that, maybe I did put that in the book, um, that, that if they're told that there's no Jews in this town, they're not going to suspect anything. And so for the three years that she was in Germany, she was actually pretty happy. I mean, she knew her family was gone. I mean, there was all that angst and everything, but she felt really, really happy. And she got kind of fat, too, because they, they, she worked as a chambermaid. And thank you, Catherine, for giving me the right German on that one. <laughs> thank you. Did that answer? Yes. I love the drama of that. Yeah. And one of the titles I, I had was In the Belly of the Beast, and then Hiding in Plain Sight. But then I thought that's not the whole story. You know, the whole story is from childhood until until she died when she was really, really old and happy. Any other questions? Yes. When did she come to the U.S.? Uh, she they came in 1947, I believe. Um, her, she met her husband Leon at the the. Well, she knew she knew Leon from Pietrakov, but he also had escaped. Um, I mean, he was in the camps, but he had escaped, and then they got married, and then Helen was born, and when Helen was four, they, they came to the United States. She's getting a glass of wine because she didn't ask a question. <laughs> <laughs> Keep that in mind. Thank you. <laughs> Anything else? Any other questions? Yes. Since you wrote in first person, uh -huh. did you find yourself kind of uh, sort of connecting with her in a different way as experienced both the highs and the... And yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, she was such, such a thoughtful person and such a free thinker, and she shared a lot of my philosophy on, on religion and, and things like that, definitely, yeah. But she's a much stronger person than I am, no question about that. You live again in desperate times. Mm -hmm. what, um, what lessons of survival or... Um, that's a really good question about we're living in desperate times now and is there anything that I learned from this book to calm myself or to help my readers be calm and now and I, no it's, it's kind of like oh my god it's happening again and one of the reasons I really really want to get this into the hands of teenagers and I say it in the book in, in the back of the book is just there are genocides happening all the time. It wasn't just the Jews and the Holocaust, and we have to stop it. You know, we just have to stop it. And so, hopefully, these stories will help the new generations to fight a little bit more against this kind of stuff. Yes. <laughs> um, it's maybe a kind of weird question, but after um, Barbara had passed away and you were writing, did you ever feel like her spirit is talking to you? Um. Mm, no, I don't think so. But I mean, you know, I yeah, I had, I had her, I had her voice, I had the tape, I had my notes, but no, I'm not, I'm not spiritual. <laughs> but maybe when you read the book, you'll feel her spirit because it's very strong. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, she never drove until her husband died. And when she was, I think, 65, she decided she, she just was before the time of Uber and Lyft, you know. And so she learned, she went and took driving lessons in Washington, D.C., and she learned how to drive. She was just that kind of a person. But you'd ne she was so charming and so sweet. And you would never know that she was steel inside. 
I don't know if we're to carry. Should we stop? And are we doing okay with time? Because I, I want to. Erica's hiding over there, and this is the one who did it all. Erica, come here. <laughs> just, just recognized a worthy project. Erica Silverman, and uh, she's a writer herself, and and. She let me whine, and I whined, and I whined, and I whined. I can't get an agent, I can't get an agent, nobody will listen to me. And she said, well, you know, maybe you should try the Deborah Harris Agency in Jerusalem, and that's how I did Any other questions? No. No, absolutely not. No, just what they did, and they cut everything. Um, my, yes, yes, please. Did Barbara ever at that age have an understanding of how she was spared or why she was spared the fate of many? Or was it just, was it just sheer personality or did you feel there was something else at work? Or? I think she felt that it was just making the right decisions at the right time. Um, she was in school, she, there was a teacher she hated in school that made them memorize, 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 and make snap, give answers like that. And at one point, when she's escaping from the Nazis, she says, oh my god, I hated him and now I love him because he taught me how to make a decision like that. And she did that, like with, when, when she went to the first grade, and she made that decision. I am going to go to school and nobody's going to stop me. And she was six years old. So no, she, I don't, she didn't believe in fate or, or any, she wasn't a spiritual person, and she just felt that she was making the right decisions. I mean, but there were so many coincidences, bumping into Sabina in Poland, there was just all these different coincidences, which you'll see in the book, they're just like amazing. There was somebody, another question? We're okay? Did you see a movie? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Wait, Helen, I, Helen and I kept the, um, the rights, the, the whatever it's called. I'm, I, I don't do business things, but we kept the, the rights. Yes? Oh, this reminds me of a movie called Double and Desperate, on Netflix, where it was also an interviewer interviewing this uh, lady who came out of the Holocaust as a young actress during the Czech Republic. Uh -huh. And as she was telling this her story, side of the story, um, there was some point at the movie where she kind of realized what she did and kind of forgave herself and accepted and had that epiphany. Uh -huh. uh, as you were interviewing her, did she have that kind of mm, no. No, I, I don't think so. She was just, I don't think so. I think she was just happy to, to tell the story and very, very humble and, and very pleased. She was, when. I'm so glad that she got to read the first draft. I mean, when we went back in February and she had the lymphoma, we went over the first draft, and she did not like my Polish spelling, but besides that, everything else was fine. She was very, very happy with it. Okay, any other questions? We have an enormous amount of food here and wine, and I would be happy to sign books if you want me to. Um, thank you so much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.